0: Another fact that I have for you, Montpelier, Vermont, is the only U.S. capital that does not have a McDonald's in it. Did anybody know that? Those are what you call useless facts. They are facts that are basically unimportant and useless, but some people think they're interesting. They're random facts that really don't have any purpose for our lives. They, they don't really mean anything good except for maybe playing a game of trivia, But then there's also facts that are a little bit more useful. Uh, Some of the facts that I could think of that would be really useful would be like knowing that when you eat healthy food, you'll probably feel better. It's also a useful fact to know if you eat unhealthy food a lot, you probably won't feel good. That's an important fact, and maybe some of you didn't know that. You've eaten like 15 Oreos, and you're like, why don't I feel so good? And then you realize, no, it's a fact that if I'm eating unhealthy food, I won't feel good. Uh, There's a lot of other useful facts. I think of, like, you're going to high school soon, some of you eighth graders, and maybe if you're going to, like, a big school, it'll be helpful for you to know a lot of important facts about your school and, like, where your different classes are. I remember, like, my first days of high school uh, having that list of, like, where all the rooms were, and I needed that list of facts with me at all times uh, so I would know where to go. And then it only takes a couple days, and all of a sudden you know where to go, right? But you need those useful facts with you. And there are tons of useful facts for life, some more important than others. But I think this passage in Luke this morning gives us the most useful facts that we could possibly know. These are the most useful facts. In fact, they're more than useful. They are essential facts. For us to go through life without these facts would be foolish. It would be sad. These are facts that are extremely important. And a disciple, in other words, a follower of Jesus, is given some amazing facts through these verses that we're going to look at here. And it's also important facts for somebody who's not a disciple of Jesus. If you're going through life and you're rejecting Christ, these facts also matter for you. And and you should wonder, why am I rejecting these facts? We get to see Jesus here having conversation in chapter 9 with his disciples, and he reveals to them some truths, some awesome, amazing truths that we need to know for life, some facts that you need to know. And I think this is just a very simple way to look at these verses, some facts, and maybe a big idea that we could say is that there are three facts here about Jesus that will help us know Jesus and that should help us want to follow Jesus better. These are facts that help us know Jesus and help us want to follow Jesus more when we look at them. So, three facts about Jesus in these verses. And let's start just by reading the passage, starting in Luke 9, verse 1. It says that he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began to go throughout the villages, preaching the gospel. And healing everyone. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see Jesus. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcomed them. And he welcomed them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the, now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, "Send the crowd away that they may go out into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place." But Jesus said to them, "You give them something to eat." And they said, "We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men." And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which had been left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life For my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. These verses uh, are telling us about the life of Jesus Christ as he was here on earth and what it was like to be around Jesus and to hear from him as he taught. And here in chapter 9, we're, we've kind of come off as Jesus has been doing all these amazing miracles. Uh, we saw that he had gone throughout uh, the area of Galilee and he had calmed the storm, uh, he had cast out demons. He had healed people of diseases, and he had even raised a person from the dead. And here in this section, chapter 9, I think there's really a way we could look at it by just saying, like, there are three facts that we can see from Jesus here. Three facts about Jesus. And first, I think we can see that, number one, Jesus provides for his followers, Jesus provides for his followers, and verse 1 says that Jesus provided for his followers with with power and authority over demons to heal diseases. And they go, verse 2 says, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Up to this point, like I said, we've seen Jesus has all this power and authority over basically everything, over all nature, over all things that are supernatural, And now he gives that authority to his disciples here in chapter 9. He kind of sends them on a special mission. This would be like a unique uh, responsibility that was kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that Jesus sent these men out to go spread the news and the message about his kingdom, and he gave them his own authority and power. He supplied them with everything they would need. They were to take absolutely nothing with them but they were to trust fully in him that he had provided what they would need. But I don't think we should get too caught up on all of the miracles, although that probably would have been amazing to see like Peter doing a miracle. But I think the main point here is to see that that God has given these men a message to preach. God has given these men the news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Verse 6 says that they were preaching the gospel. That's what really stands out here. When we hear gospel, we think of what it means. The word gospel means good news, that that Jesus is the Lord and the King, and that those who have sinned against God and have been separated from God because of their sin can be rescued from their sin. They can be saved and forgiven because of what Jesus has done. They can be brought into the kingdom of God through repenting and believing in Jesus. That was the message that Jesus had preached when he was going around preaching the kingdom. It said, he said, the kingdom of God is near. And he said, repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus here has provided this message of the gospel to his, his followers. And that's what they proclaim. And if we can, you just like a step back and think about how amazing this is. The Bible tells us that we are Sinners that we are in desperate need of being saved. We have sinned against God. And there is no way out of facing God's judgment except through the message of the gospel. And God has provided that message. That's what's what's here. Jesus has a message of good news from God himself for all who would hear. That everyone who has rebelled and disobeyed, who has rejected God, who has been caught up in their sin can be saved through coming to Jesus Christ. And that is good news. And Jesus has given this message to everyone who would hear. This message had come to these disciples and their lives were totally transformed and changed. And now they were going to be used by God to bring that message to everyone else. what what we see here is that Jesus has provided the message of the gospel. He's provided for his disciples to go and to serve him, and he has given them the greatest news or message that could ever be given to this world. It is the gospel, that God loves to save people who need to be saved. And not getting into too much deal, isn't it interesting to see that Jesus points out in verse 5 that the disciples can expect that there would be some who would not receive the message. There would be some people who, and that as they would go out and as the disciples would proclaim this message, would reject the message that God has made a way for them to be saved. They would turn away from it. And verse 7 through 9 even talks about uh, one of the greatest rulers of the time, Herod the Tetrarch, who also was rejecting this message. He had some sort of interest in Jesus. He knew that there were all these miracles and and sort of a lot of mystery surrounding who this man Jesus was. But in the end, we know that he also rejected Jesus. He was there at the time when Jesus was killed. There are people who are near to Jesus, who hear the message of Jesus, and who seem even powerful and important in this world, but they will turn away from the message because they love their sin. They have turned away from what God has provided in the message of the gospel. What an amazing gift that God has provided a way for sinners to be saved. But I think we see this even more starting in verse 10. Uh, these verses help us understand how God provides even more. We're told that Jesus and the 12 disciples return and go to this town called Bethsaida. And as they go, this this area of Bethsaida was kind of in a desolate and uh, set-apart area. We're told that they knew that they were in a place that was desolate. And in verse 12, it says that the disciples start to get nervous. Why do they get nervous? Well, here are thousands of people, apparently, this huge crowd that had come to Jesus and were listening to him. And they start to get nervous that These people all need to find a place to go, a place to uh, sleep, a place to go eat. And so they come to Jesus and say, let's dismiss these people. Let's let them go so they can find a place to go eat. But look at what Jesus says in verse 13. He says to them, you give them something to eat. That's kind of a funny statement, isn't it? What were the disciples supposed to do? I think of this almost like, Uh, If somebody came down from from big church right now, like the service in big church is going on, right? What if somebody in charge came down in here and they said, uh, we need 12 junior hires to go feed the entire church. And the service is gonna be out in five minutes and we need you up there in the parking lot with food for everyone. Let's just take 12 junior hires, maybe like uh, the West Valley Boys small group. There's 12 of you, let's say and you're going to go out and make sure all 3,000 people in the service up there are going to be fed, what would you do? Well, I believe in the West Valley Boys Small Group as much as everyone else, but I don't think that's possible. And that's kind of the point that Jesus is making here. That's exactly what Jesus knows. There is no way these men, these disciples can feed 5,000 people in such a short time and with no resources on their own. That's exactly what Jesus knows, that it is impossible, and it's exactly why Jesus is asking them that. Because for these men, this would be impossible. But for one man, for only one person, this is not impossible. They know the answer to the question, they can give them nothing to eat. But Jesus can And he does an amazing miracle. A miracle that if you've been around church, you've heard of before. The fact that Jesus was able to feed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. And I have to imagine that it was the best fish and the best bread those people had ever tasted. Jesus was able to give these people food. When The disciples had no ability to give them food. Jesus kept giving them, verse 16, food to set before the people. It just kept coming out of nowhere. Jesus was giving them food. This is God doing what he does, isn't it? Jesus giving people food. Jesus doing the impossible and providing for needy people who have no ability to help themselves. And that's just like Jesus. He loves to help needy people. And not just food. That's not why Jesus is here, just to feed people with bread and fish, although he does here. I think this reminds us of the fact that Jesus can supply something that no one else can supply on a spiritual level for us. Jesus loves to help people who can't help themselves, and God loves to help helpless people who are in a situation that they can't get out of on their own. And Jesus has the ability to feed people who are hungry for food, but also people who are hungry spiritually. People who have no ability in their own heart to be satisfied. People who have tried everything in this world to satisfy them and find that none of it does. But here is Jesus, the one who does have the power and the ability to provide for his followers. Jesus has the power to provide in a way that no one else can. And he will keep providing for those who believe in him. That's a fact. And it says there that Jesus did provide. Fact is that Jesus provides for his followers. The second fact to see here in these verses is starting verse 18, that Jesus is the Christ. Fact number two, Jesus is the Christ. It says in verse 18, it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and, qu- and he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? This is a question that that had come up before in the book of Luke. Uh, people, uh, the disciples in, in chapter eight, when they were in the boat and the, and the storm had been calmed instantly and they were facing Jesus, they asked, who is this man? And the rumors and the questions uh, were going throughout all of this Area at the time, all of Galilee. That's why Herod in in verse 7 back up there says that he was wondering, he was perplexed at who Jesus is. And it says in verse 8 that he was asking, Who is this man about whom I hear such things? Who is Jesus? Jesus asked that question to his disciples, and and they answer in verse 19 saying, uh, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others say that one of the prophets of old had risen again. These were all men who were dead and gone, but they knew that the Israelites, the people of that time knew that those men were significant in the Old Testament. They knew that Elijah and the prophets were how God worked among his people, and they, they knew that Jesus was associated in some way with what God was doing on earth. And there were lots of theories about who Jesus was. But what everyone did know was that Jesus was significant. He was important. He was supernatural. He was doing miracles that no one else could do. And he was preaching a message that was unlike any other message. But he was way more significant than any person could ever imagine. And so in verse 20, Jesus asked the disciples, And Peter gives the right answer. The answer that we know from Luke is the right answer. What does he say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And you know what? That is the answer. That is a fact that Jesus is the Christ of God. And it's a fact that matters in this world, not just for the people at this time, but that matters for us today, that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is Christ? Well, we know it's not his last name, right? It's not Jesus Christ in that way. Christ is another word that means Messiah. It means anointed one. It should make us think of the fact that God has chosen one person, to be the Savior and the King that he had promised in the Old Testament. This Messiah was the most important person this world and these people could ever know. He was God's chosen Savior to the world. And he was to be the King and the Savior that Israel had been waiting for, for years and years. But to Peter and the disciples' confusion and surprise, Jesus says to them in verse 21, a warning. Don't tell this to anyone. See, Jesus was going to be a different Messiah than everyone had expected. The people, the crowds, many of them probably expected Jesus to go and to keep feeding them. And they probably wanted to go make him king right away. He was going to be a king who would set up his kingdom now and would rule today before them. And they wanted that king. But the plan that Jesus has is a lot different than that. The plan that God has for the Messiah, for this chosen king, would be different. Verse 22 explains that. It says that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he would be killed and raised up on the third day. This was not what these men would have expected for the Messiah to do. But what Jesus was doing was going to be way more amazing and awesome than anyone could fathom. Jesus was going to go to the cross. Jesus was going to go and die, be killed and then be raised up on the third day. Jesus was going to go suffer for the sins of many, as the Old Testament had spoken of. Jesus was going to die on the cross and that is how he would save the world. Romans 5:8 says that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. The plan that Jesus has as the Christ is way more amazing than just being a guy who can give people fish and bread. The plan for Jesus as the Christ would be to provide life spiritually. Fullness of life. Everlasting life. He would take upon himself the punishment for the sins of many. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The fact that Jesus is the Christ should make us think that God has provided a man, a person, a savior for sinners who believe in him. I think there's a lot of important questions out there that you can ask in this life, a lot of important facts that you need to know Uh, at this time. I think of like, what's high school gonna be like? What am I going to do when I grow up? Maybe you're asking that. Maybe you're just wondering, what am I going to have for lunch? There are a lot of important questions, but this is the most important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? There were people who did not get it right. Herod did not get it right. There were many people who did not get it right. But the question that Jesus asked to his disciples is a question that should be turned to you and to be asked of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you and in your life? Do you know this Jesus? Have you believed in this Jesus? It's a question that matters in your own life so much in fact, it matters more than any other question you could ask today. Who is Jesus? Maybe another question to ask would be, have you confessed that Jesus is the Christ? That he is the way that God has made for you to be saved from your sin? Have you placed your trust in Jesus as the Lord, as the Savior given by God? Have you come to Jesus Christ and believed in him? That is the most important question that you could ask. And it is the most beautiful fact in the world that Jesus is the Christ. There are amazing facts here. First, Jesus provides for his followers. He has provided for his followers. And second, Jesus is the Christ. I think there's one final fact we could see here. Number three, that Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth following. In verse 23, Jesus gives these familiar words. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are challenging words, aren't they? Those are not easy words to follow. I think of uh, maybe like what it'd be like if you were trying to invent a way to sell being a Christian to somebody. Uh, You might try to explain like all these great things about being a Christian, but here Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself and you must take up your cross. Jesus brings up for the first time here, the cross. And it reminds us that he is headed to a cross, a place of, of suffering, a place of torture. When the disciples heard that word cross, They wouldn't think of just a nice thing that hangs in the worship center or something that your mom has on a necklace. They would think of torture. They would think of death. And that's exactly where their minds would go when they heard Jesus say, take up your cross. And this is, I think, a simple way to just say, to follow Jesus isn't always going to be easy. The Bible makes no mistake about it. In fact, for someone to follow Jesus means you must deny yourself. That means you must say no to yourself. And Luke says, here Jesus said it was daily that you were supposed to do that. Daily you will see that you have nothing good in yourself to save yourself. You must come to God humbly and realize you have nothing on your own. You must lay aside having yourself on the throne of your life And you must say no to self and say, Jesus is on the throne of my life. I am no longer in charge of my life if I'm a Christian. Jesus is in charge. And that's not always going to be easy. But Jesus is going to sit on the throne. And although not perfectly, a Christian now finds his joy, her joy in growing in obeying and living for Jesus Christ above all else. They now love to follow Jesus, even if it means denying self and and taking up difficulty across. But don't miss this. Jesus in verse 24 gives us some logic. He gives us the fact that following Jesus is worth it, in case we're wondering. It is worth it. And he gives some reasons. Verse 24, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Living for self will lead to losing your life. Living for self will end in judgment from God. Living for self will never satisfy you. But dying to yourself and coming to Jesus to follow him is the only way to find life, is the only way to be saved. In Jesus is the only way to life. This world will not satisfy you if you're looking for life apart from Jesus. Jesus is not saying that you have to give up all of the good things in your life. But he is saying that Jesus needs to be on the throne of your life and not yourself anymore. And verse 25 is telling us that living for this world, living for yourself and not Christ, even if you could gain everything you ever wanted that this world offers, is foolish if it means that in the end you'll lose your own soul how often it is that people do live that way, who try to find everything uh, to satisfy in this world. I think of the story that I, I saw a while back of an old uh, woman who was like Hollywood royalty, and she had uh, basically gotten everything that someone of, like her could imagine from this life. She had lived for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And there was this news story about this woman as she, was now elderly. Nobody had really seen her very much lately, and she lived in this huge mansion in New York City. She had everything, it seemed, fame, fortune, everything that money could buy. She had lived for self all of her life. And to the ordinary observer, at first we might think, man, that woman is satisfied. But you know what the reporter found as she went and interviewed this woman? She was grumpy. She was sad. She was discontent. And it was in her old age that she found that although she had seemed to gain the whole world, she didn't have life. This is what Ecclesiastes talks about when it says that you must fear God in the days of your youth if you're trying to live life, to get everything out of this life without Jesus at the center, Jesus promises a sobering fact. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, whoever rejects Jesus Christ, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. This world is not all there is, is it? There is more to life than just right now. Jesus is coming back. God will bring in the kingdom of Jesus. And there's a day where Jesus will come and those who have rejected him will find that he will judge them. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus now will face Jesus being ashamed of them. But the opposite is also true. If Jesus is your Lord now, if you're following Jesus as the Lord of your life and he is on the throne and you are not, you can be sure of this. It will be difficult at times, but it will be worth it. It will be better. It will be absolutely worth it. These verses, I think, very simply give us three simple facts. Jesus provides for his followers. Jesus will satisfy Jesus is the Christ, and following Jesus is worth it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the simple truths of the Bible that tell us that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have made a way for us to be rescued from sin and from hopelessness and even from your own judgment through your son, Jesus Christ. May we be people who follow Jesus. Lord, if there are any students who are living for self and are denying Jesus, would you reveal that to them? And would you open their eyes to come and to see that following you is worth it? And for all of us who are following you, Lord, help us to continue to follow you, especially as we grow in you. May we find uh, the joy that you promise to those who seek you and follow after you. Thank you for the message of the gospel. In the name of Christ we pray amen